Thanks, Pastor Phil, and good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Great to be here. And uh, as Mel said, as we were walking in, it's like coming home every time we come here. Praise the Lord. I wonder if that girl who had her hand healed, I wonder if she still remembers that healing or if it's just slipped out of her memory. You know, you think of the nine, le- nine lepers that didn't go back and thank Jesus. But um, as Pastor Phil was saying about speaking in tongues, a miracle that, uh, he, you know, he was a bit apprehensive if, if he'd know people had received the Spirit, but uh, you know, it's pretty easy when you hear them speaking tongues, you know they've got it. And uh, when I look around the room, you know, we've all got the Holy Spirit, we all speak in tongues, we're all possessors of the miracle, aren't we? And um, it's, it's just amazing that we, we've all experienced being touched by that miracle. It's not like a, a mixture here, like so many churches where some people know or perhaps they half know and others have no idea and wonder what this speaking in tongues is about and is it important, do you really need it and is it just a gift and, and yet we've got this unity of, of a vision that we share um, about, about this miracle we've had and, and how it was just the beginning of, of our story. Praise the Lord. Anyway, that's not the talk. <laughs> just before I start, you're probably distracted by the tie. I might have worn it here before, but this is when we went to the US to visit Sally, our daughter, and went through New York and bought that. So if, we were, if New York, we can sort of go, oh, where are we? And <laughs> the island of Manhattan in particular. Uh, just so you don't get distracted during the talk. Okay, so let's, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, about a month ago, I was asked to, to help, help with a, well, run a young people's prophecy activity on, on, on a Saturday night at, um, at the hall and um, did a sort of an interactive thing with the young people and I was sort of searching around for a topic. Uh, I do this from time to time, so I've done, done a few things before. And um, anyway, I decided to do this one on, on the third day, which pops up in the scriptures all the time. And... Um, I got the young people to, I laid out some big squares on the floor with wool and they had to um, find things on their phone and they had to go and place them in the squares and, and it was all quite physical, you know, and, and they had to do all the work. And in fact, I found quite a lot of um, ones that I hadn't noticed before. So I thought I'd turn it into a talk and um, bring it out because it's really about our resurrection when Jesus returns and we go into, uh, in some cases it's called the third day, another place it's called the seventh day sometimes it's referred to the end of the sixth day or the end of the second day but it's really all the same thing so I hope that I can make that clear but it's an exciting topic because once you notice it you realize that it's woven right throughout the scriptures from the beginning and um, even little stories where you don't sort of um, you know say the, the good Samaritan or something you know it gives him two pennies to look after the guy penny for a day, you know, in those two days. It represents something. Anyway, we'll, we'll get into it. Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> um, and uh, we'll read here about the rest. It says, Let us therefore fear, in verse 1, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And talking about those that believe and have come out of the Jewish faith and those that, that haven't and that have sort of got stuck in their past. Verse 3, For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, 
For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And it mentions there the seventh day. And you'll remember that in um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. So God, in chapter 1, makes things through six days, and it says, and he saw that it was good, and this, the evening and the morning were the fifth day, or the sixth day. And um, then at the beginning of chapter 2, he rests on the seventh day, and it's a day of rest, and it's, of course, instituted into the Sabbath, and it's part of the Lord's pattern. Um, so he's saying, there is this rest for the people of God, and it's just as God rested on the seventh day. And as always, an Old Testament type, which matches the New Testament. Uh, and in this place, verse 5, If they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, again he limited a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, for if Josh, Jesus had given them rest, it's actually Joshua. You can look in your margin, those that have margin notes, it's referring to Joshua, which means the same thing, Saviour. If Jesus had, or Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And it's a little bit of a confusing passage because it's really talking about rest in, in various ways, like probably three or four different levels of meaning in this. And one of them is, he makes it clear, he's talking about God resting on the seventh day. So we think back to Genesis 1 and 2 and the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. So there's one, one illusion. Um, but of course it's also talking about the people of Israel coming out of Egypt and through the wilderness and going into the promised land and not all of them went into that because of unbelief and perished in the wilderness and so on. So there's the rest that they missed out on. There's that level. And then, of course, it, it says, um, talks about, in verse 8, if Jesus had given them rest, meaning Joshua, then would not he afterward have spoken of another day? So there wasn't just that rest back in the Old Testament. There's another rest to come. And we know that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be the seventh day, and I'll explain that in a moment. And that is a time of rest, even though we're working for the Lord, ruling and reigning and so on. It's a time of rest in a sense that this turmoil of this world is all over and um, we're at peace in, in righteousness. Satan is locked up for a thousand years and there's peace and there's rest in a sense for the whole earth. And there's the administrating of, of the Lord's plan, and which we are part of, but it's a time of rest. And so it says, There, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. So, um, but then in verse 10, it says, For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. And there's another level of meaning, talking about now that we've received the Holy Spirit, we're into, into our rest, and that we shouldn't strive and struggle in this world, that we can rest now, even as we go through our wilderness period, waiting for the promised land to come. And so it's, very, it's quite complex, isn't it? All these strands woven into this passage of, of rest. And so we're in our rest now and uh, cease from our labours. We cast all our burdens upon Jesus, you know, and he carries them for us. Um, 
take up my yoke, which is light, and cast your burdens upon me, and so on. But there's also this day of rest coming when Jesus returns. So let's just establish a principle in 2 Peter chapter 3, and then go to Revelation after that. So 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, don't mind if you put your hand up if, if you don't quite get something, because, uh, and I'll just explain it a bit slower. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe this is all obvious. On the other hand, it might not be. Um, <clears throat> okay, so Second Peter chapter 3, in verse 8. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And this is Lord putting into this letter of Peter's a, a principle of prophecy so that we could interpret the Bible. And the Bible explains itself so often. And when people think, what on earth does that mean? And they're reading Revelation. Just read around and you'll find another verse that explains it. Same in Daniel. You know, you think, what on earth is who on earth is this goat and so on. And then a little bit later on, you know, it's, oh, he's the king, king of Greece. Oh, okay, so it's Alexander the Great. You know, it explains itself. You don't have to sort of make up all sorts of hairy theories and put them on the internet, you know, you just read the Bible. Um, okay, here we go, yes, quite apt. Um, so let's go to Revelation chapter 20. It talks about the millennium here. So that's like our yardstick. A thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years. And we'll just read the first four verses here, chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. There's the thousand years. So what is it? A day. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw the thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That's the saints. That's the spirit-filled, the body of Christ on this earth. Those that are worshipping in spirit and truth have the Holy Spirit, have spoken in tongues, have that mark of the Lord on them, have been witnesses for Jesus. Some have perished in standing up for Jesus over the, the last 2,000 years. And they get to reign with Christ a thousand years. That's a day in Bible prophecy terms. Now, we know that this is the seventh day because when Jesus returns, it will be the beginning of, this, of a thousand years, the seven, of a 7,000 year period. And um, we know that back, back from us, we're going back in time, Jesus was roughly 2,000 years ago. He was born and died. Okay. Um, you know, the, the Christian calendar starts with the year zero. Jesus wasn't actually born in the year zero, but a couple of years earlier. But that signifies the birth of Jesus Christ, and the whole world kind of acknowledges that calendar, doesn't it, even though they try and change it and call it something else, or maybe have their other calendars and whatnot. We're, we're still living in the year 2021, aren't we, around the world? So it's kind of a, a tacit acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. Um, 
So that's 2,000 years ago, so two days in Bible terms. And then if we go 4,000 years prior to that, we come to Adam. And we could do a lot of genealogical study here, but we won't today. Through the book of Genesis and all the begats and how old he was when he begat such and such and how old he was and, you know, work out that Adam was 4,000 years BC. And so in Bible prophecy terms, 4,000 years is four days from Jesus Christ born and died to now is two days, so there's six. And the millennium which comes next when Jesus returns is a thousand years or one day. That's the seventh day and it's a day of rest, the millennium. And the word millennium doesn't appear here, but that's what is what it refers to. Millennium actually means a thousand years, a thousand year period. And, you know, it's bandied around. And, um, but that's what it means. So we've got a bit of a plan here. And some people have, some people have been in the Lord a while, have that poster, God's Great Week. Talking about, you know, the seven days and so on. And we're coming up to the seventh day. So anything referring to the seventh day is really referring to this time when Jesus returns and we've got this period of ruling and reigning with Christ a thousand years and uh, Satan's locked up, so there's only righteousness on the earth, not unrighteousness. Um, but in other places, we hear about the third day prophecy. And how does that fit in? Well, it's just you start at a different point. You start at the year zero. And Jesus came, born, died, sent back the Holy Spirit, all within a short period of 33 years. And then since then, there's been two days, isn't there? 2,000 years. And so what's coming up is the third day. So in some cases, this seventh day is referred to as the third day, but it's the same day. It's the same day. So I'm just going to show you that some of these, this plan is really woven through, through the scriptures both in the Old and the New Testament. And once you start noticing it, you can't look away. Every time you see, you know, after three days they did this, or on the third day they did this, you start going, bing, you know, a little light bulb. Uh, what's this mean in prophetic terms? Let's turn to John chapter 11. And uh, you'll be thinking, John chapter 11, that's the story of Lazarus. And in verse... 17, Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick. He delays his coming. He eventually arrives and Lazarus is dead. Jesus weeps. In verse 17, before that happens, then when Jesus came, he comes to Bethany. He found that he had lain in the grave four days already. He'd been dead for four days. I go down to verse 39, and Jesus, I'm cutting out some of the story, but Jesus comes to the tomb. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he has been dead four days. And thinking with natural, with a natural mind, he's been in there for four days, he's well and truly decomposing. Do we have to take the stone away? I mean, she believes in him, of course, Martha. I mean, only a few verses earlier, she she says, I know that uh, whatever you ask of God, God will give it to thee, um, and so on, so on. But here Jesus 
says to her, Shall it, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe thou should see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound head and hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. And uh, really, this is a wonderful miracle uh, of Jesus raising the dead and he also raises uh, the son of the widow of Nain and he also raises Jairus' daughter, so he does it three times. And this is just a a famous story because it takes up the whole chapter and, of course, he's been dead four days and, you know, it's just amazing. Um, But there's also a little prophetic message in here because he's been dead four days. In prophecy terms, that's 4,000 years So from Adam up to Jesus, man was trapped in death. In his own sins, he could follow the law and the high priest could make intercession for him and he could be righteous and saved from his sins for a short period. But ultimately he was going to die in his sins and he is dead. And, you know, as Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. And, um, you know, everyone walking around, they're the dead, the living dead, and they bury their dead who actually do die mortally and so on, that's what he was referring to. But here, this man comes forth, brought back to life, and uh, he's still got his grave clothes on him, which we sometimes refer to as people's old life, hanging on to them, clinging on to them for a little bit till, till we loose them and let them go and, and go free. And, and he becomes, you know, he's back to life. In chapter 12, the, the Pharisees try to kill him because he's such a good testimony for the power of Jesus Christ. And uh, they say, let's put him to death. Uh, just like today, people try and kill off the miracles, don't they? Um, so there's the four days, and you can see how it fits the story of the, the seven days with after four days Jesus coming and giving the Holy Spirit and bringing life and righteousness, uh, life more abundantly, and Lazarus is, is a type of that. There's even a little reference perhaps to the two days back in verse 6. And when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. He waited deliberately, and he says it's so that the glory of God can be seen in what's about to happen, but he delays. And just like Jesus now is delaying his return for two days, there's a little little oblique reference to it there. So we see that, as I say, it's infused throughout Scripture. Acts chapter 10 is another one. And this is the famous story of Cornelius, the first of the Gentiles to receive the Holy Spirit. Very significant because it revealed to the the Jewish believers, the Jewish people that had become Christians and received the Holy Spirit, spoken in tongues, that were part of this early church that had been going for some years before this event, that the Gentiles were now brought into the covenant, the second covenant. And, of course, they were then able to read Isaiah and, you know, that... Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles, that he would uh, lead them in, into his church. And uh, verse 1, we read that there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. And God sees his, his heart 
and he sends him a vision and tells him to go and meet Simon. And Simon has a vision, or Peter, same person, has a vision that, uh, you know, these unclean animals that come down are actually clean. You can eat them, you know, because of the food laws and so on. It's a, you probably know the story, but... Um, He brings them together, Cornelius and Peter, and they both had visions and they're brought together so God can bring about this momentous uh, event. And he, he knows it's not, he's got to do something big, just like with the conversion of Paul, this big seeing the light on the road to Damascus. It's got to be a big thing because to bring the Gentiles in was just anathema to the, to the Jews. It's just like, you know, they're the unclean ones, you know, the dogs, and you're going to bring them in into the inner, inner porch sort of thing. Um. Anyway, down in verse 30, it says, And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood by me, before me in bright clothing. And he tells his, his story. But it's interesting that he says that four days ago he was fasting. So just as Lazarus was brought to life after four days, so too Cornelius, the beginning of the Gentiles, is brought in after four days, because it wasn't long after the day of Pentecost, it's a few years that the Gentiles are brought into the church. And verse 44, while Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision, or the Jews, which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. We've already talked about that. The hearing of tongues is the um, irrefutable proof that someone's received the Holy Spirit. Um, They heard them speak with tongues. They couldn't deny it. They saw it. And then said Peter, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptised which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And uh, probably like at a wedding when you say, does anyone object to this, you know, and there's always dead silence, isn't there? Has anyone ever been to a wedding where someone (laughs) shouted out, you have, Diana. Right. Okay. Well, generally, there's no, not an objection. And here, I'm sure Peter said, can anyone forbid water? And everyone sort of was stunned, like these Gentiles are all speaking in tongues. We remember the day of Pentecost. That's what happened to us. We were all stunned then, you know, as we received the Holy Spirit. And he commanded them to be baptised in the name of the Lord. And they then tarried they him to, then prayed they him to tarry certain days. So uh, that's the beginning in the Gentiles. Okay, I come in and we know that uh, Paul later on says, well, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's, his whole mission is to, to go out there and spread the gospel to, to those that haven't heard it before. Um, so, four days. John chapter 2. So if you're interested in Bible numerics, you can go into all sorts of you know really detailed analyses of of scriptures and numbers and so on. But here, this is a really very obvious sort of example of, of Bible numerics, of numbers um, being used to show God's um, pattern and his, his plan. Um, what am I doing in Jeremiah? <laughs> Jumping ahead. And um, speaking of weddings... Verse 1, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
And that's what I'm going to read. We know the story that uh, Jesus turned the water into wine in the earthen pots, and it's a type in itself. But it's on the third day. So there'd been two days and then this wedding. And um, I'm not going to go into this one too much, but in Revelation chapter 19 and 21, it talks about the wedding of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, and his bride, the church, the body of Christ, uh, in a white robe of righteousness. And in chapter 19, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Even that's revelation and speaks in symbols and types and so on. That is pretty clear from the Bible's cross-references and, and the way it explains itself that the Lamb is Jesus, his wife is the church, she is the saints, uh, arrayed in this fine linen, clean and white, the white robe of righteousness, made righteous, of course, by the Holy Spirit the, and through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb that was, was spilt to make that uh, robe white. And uh, there is that marriage after two days. So this is a third-day third prophecy um, when Jesus returns. I'm not going to dwell too long on that one. Let's go to Hosea chapter 6. Next book after Daniel. This is another one that just pops out of nowhere, but it's pretty pretty plain. Um, verse 1, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. How plain is that? After two days will he revive us. Jesus Christ returns. The third day he will raise us up. In First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, it talks us being raised up to meet Jesus in the air. And we shall live in his sight. And as we read in, in uh, Revelation 20, we shall rule and reign with him a thousand years. Live in his sight. Jesus Christ, of course, comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and uh, all the kings of the of the earth are answering to him. And uh, his saints are ruling with a rod of iron. Another verse in Revelation. So that one is fairly straightforward, also. So I'm going to move on. Genesis chapter forty. It's one that's a little less plain. It's uh, a bit obscure, and this is one that actually came out during the Young People's Prophecy Night that I hadn't really noticed before. But it's the story of the butler and the baker when Joseph is in prison. Um, and in verse, so just to summarise the story, Joseph is in prison. He's wrongfully imprisoned in Egypt. He's already been left for dead by his brothers, sold off as a slave to the Ishmaelites. They take him to Egypt. He's then put in a house. He's a great servant, but he's wrongfully accused. And he's put in prison, and while he's there, he prospers. Everything he does is prospering under his hand, it tells us at the end of chapter 39. It's just a very encouraging verse for us, that we, you might feel like you're in prison sometimes in this world, in this wilderness experience, but uh, 
everything that is under your hand prospers uh, eventually. Anyway, uh, in verse 1 it says, It came to pass after these things that the butler of the king of Egypt and his baker had offended their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was wroth against two of his officers and against the chief of the butlers and against the chief of the bakers, and he put them in ward or in prison in the house of the captain of the guard in the, into the prison, the place where Joseph was bound. And um, they both have dreams. And, of course, we know that Joseph's great gift is that he can interpret dreams. And uh, in verse 12, the butler had a dream and um, about a vine and branches and blossoms and so on, and Pharaoh's cup in his hand. And uh, verse 12, Joseph said unto him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thine head and restore thee unto thy place, and thou deliver, shalt deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand, after the former manner when thou was his butler. But think of me when it is well with thee, which he doesn't do. He forgets about Joseph. And then Baker has a dream also, and in verse 18, Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation thereof. The baker's dream that the three baskets are three days, Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thy head from off thee and shall hang thee on a tree and the birds shall eat thy flesh from off thee. And it came to pass the third day, which is Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast unto all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief butler unto his butlership again and he gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph but forgot him. And we see here that after three days there's a division. Those that are lifted up into a place of service and authority, much as we will be, ruling and reigning with Jesus, and those, well, he says here, hanged, but those that perish. And is there not going to be a division when, when Jesus returns? He talks about separating his sheep from his goats, for example, in uh, Matthew chapter 25. Uh, he talks about... There are many that will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. He says, but I don't know you. He talks about um, the ten virgins and five that were wise and five that were foolish and kind of squandered what they had. They were spirit-filled. They come knocking on the door. He said, I don't know you. Wow, I don't know you. And yet they're spirit-filled people um, because they, they were virgins. They were you know, made pure and they had oil in their lamps. They had the Holy Spirit, but... They just didn't keep themselves topped up and going on in the Lord. They just squandered it and um, the door was shut in their face, as it were. So we see here a, a kind of a type way back in Genesis of the separation of after three days. So as I say, not, not so much of an obvious one, but the pattern is, is right throughout the Bible. Let's swing back to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, verse 1, and after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And uh, behold, that there appeared unto the Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter is amazed and says, let's make some little booths for you, and so on. 
Verse 5, while he yet spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And of course, as soon as you see six days, you think, Bing, Bible prophecy, 6,000 years. That one's quite straightforward from the beginning of God's plan when he first revealed himself to man. He only created man in chapter 1. But in uh, chapter 2, in verse 7, it says he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and he starts a relationship. Man became a living soul. And that's the beginning of the, the seven-day or 7,000-year plan. And so after six days, Jesus takes these three disciples with him and become leading apostles and he shows them his glory of what's going to happen when he returns. You know, in Revelation, it describes what Jesus is going to be like when he returns, you know, his hair white like wool and his feet like flaming brass and so on in a furnace. And um, here he's transfigured and shining like the sun and his raiment is white as the light. And uh, I might have mentioned this before when I was about 11 years old. I remember looking up in the sky and seeing a cloud and just being stunned by just thinking, if there's God, that's, that's it there. You know, because, you know, when a cloud just absolutely shines with whiteness and it's not just white, it's bright. And you think, that's God. And you know, like the scriptures say, uh, God is evident in his creation without excuse. And I was just looking at it. I think I was lining up for class in grade six. And I looked at it, wow, you know. And there was a little thought train, you know. But it's always stuck with me. And uh, it must have been a bit like this. His raiment was white as the light. And he's just like glowing. And he's just saying, here you go, guys. This is what it's going to be like when I return. A little um, foretaste, transfiguration. And Peter mentions this later in his letter. He says, we saw his glory when we were on the mount with him. You might remember that verse. He says, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. Even more than seeing that, we've got the word of God. So isn't that encouraging for us to know that Peter, who saw this event, says this is more sure. Um, all right, uh, Joshua chapter 6. Just two more. Just quick ones. Joshua chapter 6, and of course, they've come out of Egypt, out of bondage. They've gone through the promised, uh, through the wilderness 40 years. Those that didn't believe were, were perished in the wilderness. And Jericho is shut up. Now, in the Bible, Jericho represents the world in many, many ways. You might remember the story of the Good Samaritan. He goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho and falls among thieves. You know, the world is the evil place, Jericho represents that evil place, Jerusalem is the city of God, Zion, the hill of David and so on, um, city of peace, Salem. So Jericho is the world and um, in one sense just in the narrative of them coming out of the, the wilderness they have to go through Jericho, they have to defeat Jericho because it's the, the kind of the gate into the promised land. Um, but they're all fearing because they know, they've heard the story of how the, the Jordan River stood up in a heap and they all came across Trishod. So they know that and they're all, um, it says that their hearts melted. Their hearts melted actually in the previous chapter, verse 1. Neither was there any spirit in them, in them anymore because of the children of Israel. So they'd heard the fame and the, and the story and they, oh, they're trembling. So they've shut themselves in this city because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given unto thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty man of valour. And you shall compass the city, all you men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shall thou do six days. 
And so there's the six days, 6,000 years, the world is in its place, and we've got to go around in this world, as it were, you know, for six days. From, from the time of Adam, people have lived and died and so on for six days. Yes, we've got the Holy Spirit, which is our rest on the inside, the comforter, but we're still in this world. Um, we're just going to skip ahead to verse 12. And Joshua rose early in the morning in the priests and took up the ark of the Lord. This is when they begin doing, going around the city on the first day. And the seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets and the armed men went before them. But the real wood came after the ark of the Lord, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. And the second day they compassed the city once and returned into the camp. So they did it the first day in verse 13. Verse 14 they do it the second day and returned into the camp. So they did six days. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the, the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. Every other day they just did it once. This day they did it seven times. God's seal. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the, trumpet, when the priest blew with the trumpets and Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. And we know that... Uh, We'll stop it there, but the walls fall flat and the city is taken and they take spoil from the city and there's lots of sounds of trumpets and so on. But doesn't that just remind us of First Thessalonians chapter 4 where there's the sound of the trump and a great shout, it says, and Jesus Christ returns. And so shall we be raised up to meet him in the air and those that are asleep in the Lord rise with us and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And they take the city. It's like the world is, is overcome and the walls fall flat. It has no resistance. All the kings and presidents of this world will have no power against the king of kings and lord of lords. And Thessalonians also, it talks about destroyed with the brightness of his coming, coming in a flaming fire, taking on vengeance that know, know not God and so on. So this is it. This is the type of the world uh, just falling flat in the face of of the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, in verse 17, it talks about taking out Rahab, the faithful one, the sinner who saved because of faith. Um, in verse 18, it talks about the accursed thing. Keep yourself from the accursed thing. Don't take of the spoil of the city because you'll be accursed. In other words, this world has got nothing to offer. Don't be tempted. Don't take anything from it. Keep your eyes on, on Jesus. All right, we'll leave that story and we'll finish in Exodus chapter 19, which is a three-day prophecy. Exodus 19, we sing the chorus, Upon the mountain when my Lord spoke, out of the mountain came fire and smoke, something like that. And in verse 1, In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So they're only three months out of Egypt in the wilderness. They've got a long way to go yet. They've got 40 years to go in the wilderness. But they come to Mount Sinai where the law is, is handed down to them. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pit, pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, 
You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and so on. And um, jump ahead to verse 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee. Excuse me. Forever, And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. There's a type of righteousness there. Today and tomorrow, two days. And be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Um, we'll keep reading. And thou shalt set bounds unto... The people round about saying, Take heed to yourselves that you go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether be beast or man. It shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. And there's again the trumpet. And Moses went down from the mount to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. Um... And he said to the people, Be ready against the third day, come not at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in a fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. So we have shaking, we have smoke, we have an end-of-the-world scenario, if you like. We have a covenant, we have a meeting with God. And in those last words we just read, and Moses went up. And of course... It's a type of us when, the, when the Jesus Christ returns we shall go up and we go up to the mountain of the Lord and everyone else is going to say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and let us learn of his ways. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.